Hi, this is Terry McCarty, and uh, today is the lightning round uh, episode of Reviews and Otherwise, where I discuss four films that uh, will figure in the current awards season. And uh, first of all, uh, let's start with uh, a film that I haven't uh, caught up with until very recently, and that is uh, Big, one of the rare Nicolas Cage films that uh, manages to get out of the usual uh, highway he travels of uh, doing uh, B-pictures to, I guess, to still pay off his taxes. And uh, this one, like Mandy or Cover Out of Space, uh, has uh, wider aspirations. And Pig, uh, in case you're unaware of the synopsis, uh, he lives, Cage's character lives uh, in the woods uh, outside of Portland, Oregon, and he has a beloved uh, uh, companion, Truffle Pig, that helps him uh, look for fine mushrooms, which are then uh, sold to the Portland restaurants, and it turns out that uh, he gets waylaid one day and the pig is kidnapped, so he and uh, his uh, go-between and sales, uh, played by Alex Wolf, uh, go into Portland and start uh, looking around uh, for the culprit. And my guess with the pig is that uh, if you're a younger viewer, you probably are going to like swoon, swoon paroxysms because Aesthetically, it imitates uh, 1990s David Fincher, and uh, especially the pacing and staging of scenes. Uh, it's reminiscent of Seven, and for some inexplicable reason, there's a sort of uh, underground, uh, literal uh, homage bit. Uh, re- referencing uh, Fight Club, where uh, Nick gets uh, punched a bit, and eventually it leads to a restaurateur, godfather-type figure, uh, very well played by Adam Arkin, and uh, anyway, there's no need to spoil the third act, uh, but let's say Pig is uh, watchable, uh, it's still available for rent, and it's also on Hulu, where I saw it, and it's a good cage performance, he's not uh, going too big with it, and uh, you could say that the whole thing with the with the losing the pig and uh, and what you see of the 
Portland restaurant scene is uh, sort of a metaphor for show business and probably especially for younger audiences uh, clawing their way up in the film industry. Uh, they probably shed tears at the scenes where Cage's character tells off certain uh, restaurateurs uh, for being uh, culinary and business uh, sellouts. And uh, of course we know in real life uh, sellouts uh, just double down and uh, and the person doing the telling off looks around the room and sees that nobody is going to join his or her side because they know where the bread is buttered and they want no disruption. So anyway, Pig, uh, watchable but uh, no uh, masterpiece. And uh, moving on, there is also Swan Song, the second film of 2021 uh, with that title. But this isn't the uh, Udo Kier film. This is uh, instead uh, the first uh, lead role for Mahershala Ali. And he plays a man uh, dying and uh, his uh, way to, to deal with oncoming mortality is to go into his uh, bank account and uh, arrange to be cloned so the wife and young son and the wife is expecting the second child so the clone can be trained to assume his uh, role in the household and uh, he's sparing the wife child and child to be of uh, grief and despair and with the swan song it's uh, very studied and uh, the liveliest it probably is is the opening on the train where uh, Mahershala Ali and uh, Naomi Harris's characters meet and there's some bonding business between them involving a sharing a chocolate bar and uh, from there it goes to you know more studied more look at the nice uh, woods outside of Vancouver because this was filmed in uh, British Columbia and the more or less uh, intended as benevolent uh, scientist is played by Glenn Close and uh, her assistants include Adam Beach who it's always nice to see Adam Beach again in a, in a film or TV but he's not given much to do here and uh, Aquafina shows up as uh, kind of more muted than usual comic relief and her character is also dying and, and the uh, her clone is already 
taken over her job in Vancouver as a realtor. And essentially, the cloning is, uh, spoiler alert, uh, portrayed as a fate accompli, which enables the writer-director to avoid the ethical issues involved and so there's no scene in the film where Naomi Harris finds out that uh, uh, she's going to be the rest of her life with a man who's uh, not the man she originally married and with Swan Song, it's certainly watchable f- uh, for Mahershala Ali and Naomi Harris, and it's otherwise uh, just a film that uh, kind of luxuriates in its premise and does not uh, really. grip uh, people long enough, you just watch it being studied and uh, measured and how, you know, gleaming the quasi-futuristic sets are, and uh, there's, well, I mean, some viewers uh, might be moved uh, by uh, late in the film, which involves uh, uh, Mahershala Ali's character, the original character, uh, kind of having sort of a metaphorical death uh, before the physical one comes. And uh, But if you see... Swan Song. I would just recommend uh, watching it on uh, its uh, platform of uh, Apple TV Plus. It's not really uh, worth a theater ticket. And from there, let's uh, move on to a film that is worth a theater ticket, and that's uh, Guillermo del Toro's uh, remake of the Edmund Golding's uh, 1946-47 classic uh, cult film noir, uh, Nightmare Alley. And uh, I guess to say up front uh, with Del Toro, it's apparently he and and his wife and co-screenwriter Kim Morgan based it more on the original novel than the than the early film was, but uh, to get the, I guess, the primary dab it out of the way first is the fact that uh, pacing-wise it's quite uh, leisurely and uh, some audiences aren't going to uh, like that, and it's as if uh, 
uh, del Toro fell in so much love with the two worlds he created, the uh, low-rent carnival world of the first half and the art deco New York City of the much of the second half that uh, he wasn't in uh, much of a hurry to uh, leave uh, either world. And as always, uh, there's a deep uh, bench of acting talent in this and other Del Toro films, and uh, Bradley Cooper, in his own way, makes the uh, Stan Carlyle role his own, and uh, Kate Blanchett uh, playing the Helen Walker role from the earlier film certainly makes it her own, and and you get the wicked uh, Lauren Bacall vibe from her, and also uh, Rooney Mara playing a more older, more mature, less girlish uh, variant of, uh, of the way that uh, Molly was played uh, in the uh, earlier film by Colleen Gray. So, well, acting-wise, when you get into the second half, you have uh, uh, Richard Jenkins as a twisted uh, multimillionaire, and and Jenkins uh, really, especially one key scene towards the finale, just. Uh, really, uh, you know, grabs uh, the, uh, metaphorically, Mr. Cooper and, and uh, Ms. Mara's character and shakes them around uh, metaphorically, and uh, it's, as I probably said before, you know, has the brilliant design of uh, always found uh, with uh, Del Toro films and it doesn't pander for awards uh, like the to me overrated uh, The Shape of Water did but it's very dark Uh, the ending is uh, dark and probably for uncompromising um, it's paying a, a very uh, much of a price uh, but uh, in January uh, there's a alternate version down in black and white coming and uh, it's uh, be worth seeking out some prints will be 35 millimeter Hello again, this is Terry McCarty, and uh, continuing uh, reviews and otherwise. uh, I'll finish up talking about uh, Aaron Sorkin's uh, Being the Ricardos, which is uh, yet another retelling of the tempestuous, tumultuous, and 
creatively bountiful uh, marriage of uh, Lucio Ball and Desi Arnaz. And about 30 years ago, when I was a young extra, not yet uh, into SAG, uh, I was an extra on one of these uh, uh, Lucy and Desi retellings. And that was uh, with uh, Francis Fisher playing Lucy and, uh, and Sonny from General Hospital, Maurice uh, Bernard uh, playing Desi. And that particular telling was a CBS TV movie directed by Charles Jarrett, who people of a certain age may know for doing uh, prestige work for Hal Wallace, like uh, Mary Queen of Scots, uh, with uh, Vanessa Redgrave and Glenda Jackson. And uh, so what does Aaron Sorkin bring to retelling the Lucy and Desi story? Well, he is most comfortable doing his uh, walk and talk and one-liners, uh, rat-tat-tat-tat, back and forth, uh, type of workplace comedy drama. So when the film is in that groove, it uh, is probably at its best and uh, uh, give credit to uh, the routinely excellent Tony Hale uh, for his work as uh, Jess Oppenheimer, the showrunner, and uh, also Alia Shawkat as, uh, as one of the Madeline Pugh, uh, one of the, or actually the only female writer in the writer's room. So, uh, once uh, you're past uh, the workplace thing, you have a clunky type of uh, framing device, which is uh, some of these characters being played older, like the like uh, Jess Oppenheimer uh, 50 years later or 45 years later gets played by uh, John Rubenstein who's it's nice to see him act again and uh, then you see Ronnie Cox playing the role that Jake Lacey plays uh, in, the, in the body of the film Linda Lavin taking over for Alia Shawkat and Essentially, the, the, well, before I go into the conventional aspect of the film, let's say that the I Love Lucy story basically takes three or four uh, things that did happen, uh, Desi's infidelities being outed, uh, Lucille registering uh, as a Communist Party member, in the 1930s to please her uh, uncle that uh, helped raise her and whether 
whether or not to have her be uh, pregnant on the series. These are things that took place uh, years apart and they get uh, mashed into one week because uh, Sorkin thinks the more overload uh, the better. And uh, anyway, going back to the flashbacks, uh, basically begins with uh, Lucy and Desi meeting 1940 preparations for the film they co-starred in for RKO, Too Many Girls, and then following the relationship, him uh, playing his uh, music with his Cuban orchestra at uh, Ciro's, and and, uh, Lucille being frustrated uh, that uh, RKO won't uh, let her um, break out of B-films and do more aid dramas like the Big Street, uh, which he did with Henry Fonda. And the way the flashbacks are handled are pretty reminiscent of uh, movies made at Universal in the 70s that are now forgotten, but the, in the 70s there was a whole run of uh, films uh, either celebrating or critiquing old Hollywood and uh, the one that's sort of by default best remembered today is the one that John Schlesinger did at Paramount, the adaptation of Nathaniel West's uh, The Day of the Locust. But the Universal films uh, are less remembered and uh, one was uh, Gable and Lombard uh, with James Brolin playing Clark Gable, Joe Clayburgh as uh, Carol Lombard, and the selling point of Gable and Lombard back then was, well, it's rated R, and you uh, get to see the old Hollywood figures talk dirty, and Sorkin kind of does uh, some variant of this, and being the Ricardos, you get to certainly get to hear Lucy talk uh, a little bit dirty um, uh, at certain points and you wonder how much of that uh, actually happened or or not and and then of course with Sorkin he's kind of lets the anachronisms uh, fly at times like in the 1942 uh, studio scene with uh, Lucy and the RKO head. Judy Holliday's mentioned, and Judy Holliday wasn't even in movies at, at that point. And, and then, of course, you see a poster for another film on the studio wall, uh, which was an RKO release six years later. The uh, controversial Stromboli with uh, Ingrid Bergman Rossellini directed, but, you know, uh, Aaron doesn't really care about uh, accuracy, so just uh, whatever uh, makes an effect, and and the flashback scenes pretty much, they're kind of like uh, pro forma TV-ish and don't really help... uh, all that much 
But let's pivot from that and answer the question of, well, Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem, how are they as Lucy and Dassey? And my verdict is mixed. It's when you see the I Love Lucy reenactments, uh, you can tell they're dutifully imitating uh, line readings and expressions, but uh, uh, neither one playing the Lucy and Ricky, Ricardo, neither one is particularly convincing. Uh, Nicole Kidman is better in terms of uh, conveying Lucy's uh, uh, toughness as a co-showrunner and de facto director slash gag person. And you can buy her and Javier easily as uh, captains of industry and early television when the format of the situation comedy was uh, still being worked out and of course uh, Desi's uh, genius with uh, along with the uh, cinematographer Carl Freund inventing the multiple camera shooting live on stage uh, sitcom format which uh, continues to this day and being the Ricardos, um, I guess if you're a TCM fan that doesn't mind the F word every so often and, and you uh, or otherwise please easy aesthetic conservative, uh, you'll probably get more out of the film than I did, but uh, I wouldn't see it in a theater. It's if you if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber and you have it already, uh, then it's worth a look. But um, it will be a part of award season. But I don't really think that it's uh, a film that, uh, other than uh, nominations, is going to be like a big award season player. So that's all for this. Uh, episode and uh, later in the week I'll try to say a few words about the Matrix Resurrections and uh, others uh, to be announced and thank you so much for listening and if you like what you've been hearing please uh, by all means uh, recommend it or or link to it via your favorite form of uh, social media and uh, wishing you and yours uh, a happy and safe and careful uh, holiday season. Thanks again. Bye.